0: Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we read And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Smyrna. So Smyrna was a city about 40 miles north of Ephesus in the province of Ionia. It would have been the second stop for this letter, which is the book of Revelation, along a normal postal route. Now remember I said last week there were many churches in Asia Minor But Christ chose these seven churches, these seven churches he addresses here, for a reason. Now, part of it, I'm sure, was to address specific issues within the church. And across these seven churches, these issues were evident. But there were other reasons, I believe. So, why Smyrna? Well, Smyrna was a very wealthy city. Very. It was like the Beverly Hills of Asia Minor in 95 AD. And Jesus actually alludes to the wealth of this city later on in the address. And the city of Smyrna had a population, get this, of close to 100,000 people in the 1st century. That's a metropolis by the standards of the day. We read in uh, Tacitus's Annals, he was a famous historian and senator in Rome, uh, we know that Smyrna beat out six other cities in Asia Minor, which means outbid them, by beat them out, for the right to build the temple to Emperor Tiberius in the early 1st century. Then, in the early second century, about 100 years later, they then won, i.e., outbid all the other towns for the right to build a temple to Emperor Hadrian. So, by the time this letter was written, Smyrna was in the midst of over a century of wealth and notoriety. And archaeological digs have shown that the emperors, the Roman emperors, were even on their local coinage in the first century, which really isn't all that surprising. And Polycarp, if you've ever heard of him, an early church father, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was born in Smyrna in 69 A.D. He was a prominent leader there, and at one point he pastored this church that Christ is addressing here. And he was finally martyred in Smyrna in 155 A.D. So taken all together, Smyrna was a rich, worldly, hotbed for emperor worship. They worshipped the Roman emperors for decades before this book was written, and they would worship them for decades after this book was written. And smack dab in the middle of that, both in time and space, was a church that was hotly persecuted for their faith. So for these reasons, Christ chose to address Smyrna. Because remember, the addresses the letters to the seven churches were to commend and rebuke the church for how she was living in the world, especially amid persecution and tribulation. And we'll see that the word tribulation appears twice in this one address, which is only four verses long. And we'll also see a church in Upper Montclair, New Jersey in 2021 has some things in common with the church in Smyrna, circa 95 AD. So let's see what Christ says to the church, what the Spirit says to the churches. We read, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died And came to life. Now notice again, Christ gives a direct command to John to write this address to them. He says, to the angel in the church in Smyrna, write. This is that, thus says the Lord. It gives this address, the authority of God himself. And remember also that the angel he's talking to is representative of the people of the church, of the Christians, in their appointed role as messengers of the gospel. So he's writing to the Christians who make up the church in Smyrna. And notice... How Christ describes himself. We again have his epic description of Christ by Christ. He starts off by saying that these words that he is commanding John to write are the words of the first and the last. You remember a few weeks ago to our discussion in chapter 1, we saw John, who wrote this, his reaction to seeing the glorified Christ. We read, when I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore. If you were here, you'll remember that Christ referring to himself as the first and the last points to his eternality. It is a claim to be Yahweh. It is a claim to be the everlasting God who does not change, which means it also points to the timelessness of the message he's sending to his church. It is for the Smyrnian church. That's actually right. I looked it up. The Smyrnian church in 95 AD, but it is for the church of all time. And God used the same formula the first and the last in the book of Isaiah to validate his to validate his words spoken by the prophet, to point to himself as the speaker through the prophet Isaiah. And he does this three times. In Isaiah 41, where God predicts the tribulations his people will face at the hands of Babylon. Through that he calls those with faith in him to trust him through the tribulations, because he is sovereign over all. He says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first? And with the last, I am He. We see it again in chapter 48 with the same purpose. God is sovereign over all of creation. He says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. We also see it in Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And notice here, we have this, thus says Yahweh, who is the king, and his redeemer, who is Yahweh of hosts. This is pointing to two persons, both, who are Yahweh. And of course, the second person, the redeemer, being Christ in his deity. Christ, using this formula here in Revelation, points back to this. It further affirms what John is writing, that they are the words of Yahweh, they are the words of the sovereign God, they are the words of the redeemer. And as we saw, when he says in chapter 1 that he is the living one who died and yet is alive forevermore, he's identifying himself not just as God, not just as Yahweh, but as Jesus of Nazareth. The man who was crucified in space and time and died and was resurrected on the third day. So he's referring to when he says the words of the first and last, who died and came to life. He's saying these are the words of the Redeemer, the God-man that one salvation at the cost of his own life, whom God raised from the dead to confirm the truth of his words and the effectualness of his ministry. Remember what we already saw. Christ usually uses these awesome descriptions of himself in each of these seven addresses as they apply to the particular address. So here, before he even gets into what he's going to say to the church, before he rebukes them, before he commends them, he wants to remind them of two things in this description of himself. First, he wants them to see the world, the here and now, through eternal eyes. Remember, part of the purpose of the book of Revelation is to show us the unseen reality behind what we see with our physical eyes. Christ wants the church in Smyrna, believers in the middle of a very rich, very worldly, very pagan city who were under persecution to keep the eternal truth of who he, Christ, is and who they are in him in view. He wants them to remember that despite what they see, he is the sovereign God who created everything outside of whose providence nothing happens that happens. And when we face trials and tribulations, it's really very easy to forget, isn't it? So that's first. Second, he wants them to remember death has been defeated. That even though they may die physically, yet they will live. They will live on in spirit and some that even be raised to incorruptible physical life in his return. Christ said this famously. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And both of these reminders that Christ is offering the church right up front here are important. Because, again, these believers lived in an area where it was very dangerous to be a Christian. It would be very dangerous to be a Christian for decades to come after this. In fact, we'll see Christ encourages them to keep their faith even if it means death. And these reminders of who Christ is, of what Christ has done... They are meant to be a comfort to these Christians in the face of the tribulations they were facing and the tribulations they yet would face. And it is that call to persevere through the suffering that they were facing that all Christians face in this life to endure by focusing on the person and work of Christ. Okay, so right up front, Christ points this church to himself. Because of the persecution and the suffering they were facing. In fact, he reminds them that he is in this with them. Which is why he says, I know your tribulation. And we have that same word for know that we saw last week. It means to know something intimately. To be intimately involved in something. Christ has an intimate knowledge of the tribulation. And of course he does. He just said he himself died. For the same reason these brothers and sisters were being persecuted. He died because of the truth of the gospel. And we see here that word, tribulation. It's the same word that John used when he began to describe the vision, if you remember. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, why is this important? Because the book of Revelation describes tribulation. But not a seven-year period at the end of time. It is the tribulation of a church always has and always will face while in the world. It is the tribulation Christ himself faced from the world. It's the tribulation of a church in Smyrna would face in a very wealthy area of the world, in a very ungodly area of the world. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? OK. Christ is saying, listen, if you live out the gospel where you are, if you live out the gospel in this very worldly area, you are going to face tribulation. John says he faces tribulation. Christ faces tribulation. said he knew that the Smyrna church faced this tribulation. And this is in the first century. This has never stopped, and it will never stop until Christ returns. And what that means is that we will face tribulation. But just like the church of Smyrna, Christ is with us. Christ knows our tribulation too. Like he knew the tribulation of his church, but he doesn't just know the tribulation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He says he also knows their poverty. The word used here in Greek refers to not just being poor, this is talking about abject poverty. This is a a beggar with no, literally no worldly possessions. That was the poverty he's talking about here. But he says at the same time that they were rich. Now, this word for poverty is used only one other place in the Bible. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul commends the church in Macedonia for their giving to the poor, even though they themselves lived in this type of abject poverty. But then Paul brings that around to Christ to show us what true poverty is. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. By Christ's poverty... The church has become rich. And this, of course, is referring to God the Son taking on humanity and ultimately going to the cross. He became poor in a sense that we can't even begin to understand when he did that. But he did it that by his poverty we might become rich. In other words, Christ did not hold on to what he had in his deity. Instead, he took on humanity and gave us the true riches of salvation. So the idea of poverty here, when Paul uses the word, poverty and riches for Paul here are spiritual. It's not about worldly riches. And here I think the same thing is going on when he says, I know you're poverty, but you are rich, Christ has taken the fact that this church was in the middle of great wealth in Smyrna, in a culture of excess, in a culture of worldly living to the nth degree. And they, these Christians in this church were poor. Now, it may be they were physically poor, but the fact that they were in Smyrna would indicate that's probably not the case. But they, in following Christ, they made themselves poor. And it doesn't mean they gave away all their belongings. No, rather, they they didn't hold on to what they had in this world. They didn't count worldly riches, physical possessions, as important. Instead, they valued Christ above all things. And that's what made them truly Rich, this is talking about the right heart and the right faith in the midst of excess and worldly living, and that is what this church had. In fact, this is the only one of two of the seven addresses that has no admonishments in it. Christ tells them they're doing nothing wrong. This church was doing it right, and yet, as we'll see, he says you're still going to face great trial in the world. And as an address to the universal church, as an address to all Christians, this is an encouragement to us to do what this church did. To not value the things of this world, even if we live in a rich area, which many of us do. We are very much like the church in Smyrna in this sense. And you may not feel as if you're rich. And maybe by New Jersey standards or American standards, maybe you're not rich. But the reality is, when we consider the entire world, we're all rich. Montclair, Essex County, northern New Jersey, it is by all worldly standards a filthy rich area of the world. And here we are. We are a church in the midst of that. We are a church in the middle of great wealth out there. It's like Christ is addressing us almost personally here. The question we have to ask is, can Christ commend us like he did the church in Smyrna? Are our values in line with their values? It's something to think about. And something else to think about is that even if we are, as a church, doing it right, well, it doesn't mean we're not going to face trials. It doesn't mean we're not going to face tribulation here in the world. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear. The more we do things right in God's eyes, the more trials we're going to face in the world. And the point is that as a message to the universal church, Christ is excluding the kind of thinking that believes being a Christian is easy. He actually excludes the questions we all sometimes ask, like, well, why would a bad thing happen to such a good person? He's excluding those complaints that we've all made, where we say, God, oh, I follow you and I serve you, and yet this happens to me? In other words, Christ is saying there is no direct correlation between our faithfulness to him and the good that happens to us in the here and now, quite the opposite. But he's also saying he's with us in our trials. He's with us in our tribulation. He's with us in our suffering. He's with us in our faithfulness to him. He says to these Christians that we saw last week, he makes it specific. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Not just tribulation in general. No. He doesn't know these things in general. He knows these specific Christians and their specific needs and their specific tribulation and their specific poverty. Just as Christ is with us in our specific trials. Christ continues. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you were rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, Christ knows these tribulations they're facing, but he also knows of the slander of his church faced by people, he says, who said they were Jews, but were actually a synagogue of Satan. So, what is he talking about here? Well, understand. In the middle of the first century, Christianity was considered by Rome to just be a denomination within Judaism. The Jews, of course, disputed this, and especially after the Neronian persecutions of Christians, they disputed this. So by the time this letter was written, Christians were distinct from Jews in the eyes of the Romans. And in order to keep peace between them and Rome, many of the Jews were very willing to incite Rome against the Christians telling lies about the Christians, even though sometimes, I'm sure, they believed they were telling the truth. But that means that Christian persecution, when this letter was written, at the end of the first century, it was coming from both Rome and from the Jews, and sometimes they were even working together. Polycarp, who I mentioned earlier, who was born in Smyrna, pastor of a church here, studied under the Apostle John, his martyrdom was written about. We don't know who wrote it, but here's an excerpt. Polycarp hath confessed himself to be a Christian. When this was proclaimed, the whole multitude of both Gentiles and of Jews who dwelt in Smyrna cried out with ungovernable wrath and with a loud shout, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the puller down of our gods, who teacheth numbers not to sacrifice nor worship. Saying these things, they shouted aloud and asked the Asiarch Philip to let a lion loose upon Polycarp, but he said it was not lawful for him since he had brought the sport to a close. Then they thought it fit to shout out with one accord that Polycarp should be burned alive. Both Gentiles, as in the Romans, and the Jews together demanded that this Christian leader who was teaching the gospel, the leader of the church in Smyrna, be burned alive. And he was. So when Christ says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, this is what he's referring to. The persecution by unbelieving Jews, and in particular, their slander, like we see here. Their words that incited the Romans to persecute the Christians even more. But then why does Christ say these people are not Jews if he's talking about persecution by the Jews? All right, well, the word here for slander in the Greek is blasphemia. We can see the word there, right? So we get our word blasphemy. And it is translated as blasphemy most of the time in the Bible. So Jesus is saying, hey, I know the blasphemy of these people. I know the blasphemy of these people who say they're Jews. And what's their blasphemy? When we read about blasphemy in the Bible in the Old Testament and through the Gospels, It talks about blasphemy from an Old Covenant Jewish point of view, which would be either using the name of Yahweh in vain, trying to make yourself equal with God, you know, all the things they accused Jesus of. But what is blasphemy from a New Covenant Christian point of view? Well, blasphemy would be refusal to affirm Christ as God. In other words, these people who identified as Jews in the late first century, that has refused that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus is saying, well, then they're not true Jews. Jesus is saying that the Jewish faith, one that refused Christ, was not the true Jewish faith because, as Christ said, the Jews should have accepted him. They should have more readily accepted him than Gentiles. They should have known that he was God and Messiah and Savior. And if they did not, then they were not the true religion of God, but they were worshipers, even if they didn't know it, of Satan. Now, let's think about Jesus' exchange with the Jewish leaders. After the light of the world discourse, Jesus is challenged by his Jewish leaders. And he says to them, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He tells them, if you were truly the sons of Abraham, if you truly were the sons of God, if you were truly Jews, you would love me, he says. He says, you would know that I am the truth. But they didn't. So God, Jesus says, God is not your father. Satan is your father. And you are not the true sons of Abraham. And immediately after this is when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, identifying himself again as Yahweh. And now, we come to our passage tonight where Jesus makes that claim to be Yahweh and says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He's pointing to the fact that he himself faced tribulation in the world. How he made himself poor for the sake of the elect. How he knows what it's like to bear the false accusations of false Jews who are really followers of Satan. There's an irony he's pointing out here. He's saying, those who accuse me of blasphemy, those who accuse you, true believers, of blasphemy, they are the true blasphemers. And this is why he makes that call early on to see the world through eternal eyes. These Christians lived in one of the richest areas in the world, yet they were called to find only their true riches in Christ. They were accused by a false blasphemous religion of blasphemy and were persecuted along along with the unbelieving world by them. And yet, Jesus' encouragement to them is, do not fear what you're about to suffer. See, now Jesus is them, yes, you face tribulation, you face false accusations from these blasphemers, you face persecution from both the Jews and the Romans. But you need to see this with eternal eyes. Because he says the real suffering is about to come. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. But first, again, we see this suffering. This is going to come at the hands of the devil. That's what Christ just told the church of Smyrna. Those who were persecuting them, you know, they're followers of Satan. They're followers of the devil. Now he's saying, well, now the devil's going to throw some of you into prison. And this is nothing more than the continuation of that promise God made when he pronounced the curse on the serpent who was Satan after the fall, Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you he shall bruise his heel. This enmity between the offspring of a devil and the offspring of the woman, as in Christ and subsequently the elect of all ages, it has been since the Garden of Eden when sin first entered the world. It was in 95 AD and it will be until the return of Christ. And just like believers, we are the hands and feet of the Lord in the world, right? What we do by faith, it is God doing the work through us. So those who are under the influence and the lies of the devil act as his hands and feet, in a sense. See, what they do against God and his people, the devil does. And what was the devil going to do? Well, he says, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. He says, they'll be thrown in the prison by the devil that they may be tested. Now, what does that mean? I think perhaps test isn't the best word to use here, only because as Christians very often, we tend to separate testing from temptation. And testing is something God does to us, and temptation is something God doesn't do to us, right? In fact, the world this word is translated tempted in the New Testament about half the time. And it might be a better word to use here because, as we know, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And this, here in James, is speaking about the temptations we face when we're led astray by our own sinful hearts. The point is, temptation of this sort does not come from God. But neither does the kind of temptations being talked about here, which is the kind of temptation that Christ faced. Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the same word. That's the same word being used here. as translated tested in Revelation 2.10. And what, what did the devil tempt Jesus to do? Well, he tempted Jesus to stray from the course the Father had set for him. He tempted Jesus to avoid the worldly suffering of the cross. And it's the same thing the devil tempts us with often. Listen, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Never God. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These tempt us to stray from the course we know God has set for us. They tempt us to avoid suffering from a worldly point of view and instead choose ease in the world. And that's what Satan was going to tempt these Smyrnian Christians with. Satan was going to throw some of them into prison to tempt them to change course, to tempt them to make friends with the world by denouncing their faith. This was a big thing at the end of the first century. And this is what Jesus is warning about here. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. So what does this mean that for 10 days of tribulation? What's the 10 days? This is a reference back to the book of Daniel. Very briefly, Nebuchadnezzar successfully besieges Jerusalem in 586 B.C., takes Judah captive. And as part of that, we read this in the book of Daniel. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of a nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they took, basically, the rich, high-society Jewish men, men of high standing in Judah, and among them, of course, famously was Daniel and, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar wants them to come to learn to live like Babylonians, to learn like Babylonians, to live exactly like the world around them. And he offers them the best of what he had. Next verse is The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So this is the food and the wine that the king had. It was the best of the best. It was only the richest and most powerful ate and drank. And they would get to live with the king. They would get to be with the king. They'd live like royalty. See, the king was trying to tempt these men to forego their religion, to forego their faith, and make friends with the world, to make friends with the enemies of God. But then they refused Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. For ten days... These men of faith resolve not to partake of what the world has to offer. For 10 days, they resolved to do only what God allows, and nothing extravagant, nothing beyond what God allows. And at the end of a 10-day trial, Daniel and his friends were told they were more well-sustained than those who had the best of what the world had to offer. This is what Christ is referring to when he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days... You'll have tribulation. He's encouraging the Christians, the Christians in Smyrna, a hotbed for emperor worship, a rich pagan city, not to make friends with the world at all costs. He says, you'll have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation because you're going to refuse the world for my sake. But at the end of a trial, at the end of a temptation, at the end of the tribulation, just like Daniel, they will be sustained. They will be so much better off than those who partake of the world. This is why he calls them to look with eternal eyes. He's encouraging them to keep that eternal outlook and realize the suffering, the trial, the temptations in this world, the tribulation. It is nothing compared to the reward that we have when we stay faithful to Christ. But also he's saying this isn't going to last forever. In saying they will have tribulation for 10 days, he's pointing to the fact that they're suffering. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad our suffering gets in this world, it is finite. It is limited. It is nothing compared to the eternal. This is an exhortation to all Christians to persevere in the face of suffering. Why? Because our victory is assured. Because the unstoppable movement of history, remember, is towards a sure end for us. So we need to see the spiritual. We need to see the eternal reality behind the finite physical world in order to persevere. And that's what he was calling the church to. So Christ continues the exhortation. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus tells them the hard truth that they may and likely would, and history tells us many did, die for their faith. But he encourages faithfulness even if it means death. And this is exactly what Christ told them and us would happen if we followed him. Let's go back to the Olivet Discourse again for a minute. Jesus said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. See. Christ is telling this church, who now have the Jews and the Romans coming against them, who are now going to be put to death, he's saying, hey, the time has come. This is now going to happen if you remain faithful to me. And we see these exhortations, remain faithful in the face of imprisonment and death throughout the whole book. We'll get there, but speaking of the beast... John says this, it opened its mouth in Revelation 13, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain, Sorry, If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We'll see over and over again at all costs, no matter what the earthly consequences are. As Christians, Christ says, do not make friends with the world. Remain faithful to me. We should remain faithful to the one who saved us, even if it means imprisonment, even if it means death. And it does for a lot of our brothers and sisters in some countries. This is what Christ is saying to the church in Smyrna here, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus here makes a promise to these Christians. He promised if they remain faithful, if they do not give in to the ways of the world, he will give them the crown of life. This is what the book of James, very likely the first New Testament book written. Probably these Christians in Smyrna knew the book. There's the promise to those who remain faithful in this way. This is right before the verse we read earlier. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You can see Christ is here in the book of Revelation echoing the same promise. He's promising the crown of life, which is just a metaphor for eternal life. And the Greek here can be translated receive the crown, namely life. And Christ makes it clear in the next verse that he's speaking eternal life. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, there it is again, to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So he calls for perseverance in the face of imprisonment. and calls for perseverance in the face of death and then promises the crown of life, eternal life, for those who are faithful. He calls for those with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. If you persevere in faith, even if it means physical death, you will not be hurt by the second death. Spiritual death. In other words, though we may die for our faith physically, as one of Christ's, we will never die spiritually. Again, as we saw, he promised, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's the promise Christ is making. When he says, to the one "The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And here we see that motif of victory, right? To the one who conquers goes the crown of life. And this closely parallels what we saw last week when Christ promised the Ephesian church, if you remember, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's the same promise, eternal life in the presence of Christ. And until then, we can know that he is with us and that he is all we need to persevere. So the writer of Hebrews said, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that is why Christ wants the church of Smyrna and every church to know that he knows us. He knows our tribulation. He knows our tribulation and then some. He knows our trials and then some. Because he already knows physical death. And he understands perseverance in the face of it all. And he encourages his faithfulness because he is, as he started with this address, he is our sovereign God and resurrected Lord. And as we know, look at this last week, Paul said... That I consider that the sufferings of his present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's the promise Christ is making. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Amen.